Welcome to the Jeff Knows Inc. Show with your host, Jeff Lopes, where we bring you the world's top athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, influencers, and their journeys to success. Welcome to episode 179 of the Jeff Nosey Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lopes. Super excited to have on today a former pro BMX athlete, one of the most inspiring stories you'll ever hear, Josh Perry. Sit back, everyone, and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Monk Pack. Monk Pack is a low-sugar, gluten-free, and non-GMO nutrition bar that tastes absolutely delicious. The team at Monk Pack was kind enough to send a massive care package to my house. My wife, my kids, we all live a healthy lifestyle, and we all absolutely love the bars. These bars only contain one gram of sugar, making them the absolutely perfect snack. Anyone trying to cut down on their carbs without sacrificing taste, this has to be your number one choice. Monk Pack comes in a variety of flavors, hands down. My favorite is coconut cocoa chip. Lately, I've been finding myself grabbing one of these healthy bars on the way out for a breakfast alternative instead of grabbing a bowl of cereal full of tons of sugar. One thing I love about these bars is not only do they taste absolutely amazing, but they have that soft, chewy texture. It reminds me almost like a candy bar or even a sugary snack I'd have as a child. So with Monk Pack, you get the best of both worlds. A great tasting snack without the unhealthy high sugar content. Right now, Jeff Knows Inc. listeners get a total discount of 20% off their first purchase of Monk Pack product. All you have to do is visit MonkPack.com and use the coupon code Jeff Knows at checkout. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K dot com. Pick your product and use that coupon code of Jeff Knows. That's J-E-F-F-K-N-O-W-S at checkout to save 25% off your first purchase. This podcast is brought to you by Cast Us. Have you ever spent the time to ask your customers how easy it was to navigate through your website? The reason I'm asking is 47% of customers expect your website to load in less than two seconds. Retailers lose an estimate $2.6 billion every single year just because their website is too slow and not easy to navigate. You have to realize your website is your virtual representation of your traditional brick and mortar. It's almost like your salesperson 24-7 telling your customer a story about your brand. By having your website streamlined to offer the best user experience, you're able to be more efficient with your time and resources for your customers. Castus is a team of business developing experts that enables a B2B e-commerce to streamline the relation between your wholesalers and your resellers. They create custom digital storefronts that cater to both your products and your buyers to drive online orders and strengthen your brand loyalty. Castus in-depth experience working in the back-end logistics to front-end customer experience and everything in between makes them the perfect full-cycle partner for your business growth. Visit their website, castusglobal.com forward slash Jeff Knows to set up a non-obligation one-on-one free consultation with one of the experts to learn more. That's C-A-S-T-U-S-G-L-O-B-A-L.com forward slash Jeff Knows. That's J-E-F-F-K-N-O-W-S. We are live. We are live on the Jeff Nosing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lope. Super excited to have on today, Josh Perry. What is up, brother? Uh, not much, man. Just uh, enjoying my uh, start to the morning and get to have a cool conversation with yourself. I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be fun. I, I, Josh's profile popped into um, my feed. I think it was through LinkedIn. And it's because we're both going to be speaking on a uh, an event coming up. 
And, and then I started looking into a story and I kind of wanted to see every, everybody on the panel. And I started looking into a story. I'm like, this guy's got an incredible story and love to have him on as a guest. And we started connecting and, and, uh, Voila, here we are now. So I'm excited to have you on and and just hear your story. And what I'm going to do today is something a little different. I want to kind of take it back and give me a rundown of you growing up and let's hear the whole story to how it got to here. And as I go, and we're just going to have a fun conversation today, brother. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. So yeah, so I guess um, starting from the beginning, I grew up playing all the traditional school sports ever since t-ball to little league to baseball or that's baseball, but basketball and anything in my hands on, I got exposed like to a lot of different sports growing up. And then action sports came to my life around the, like, 11 or 12. I got a skateboard and rollerblades before rollerblading kind of died off, at least in America. And then when I was about 13, you know, I've been messing around with bikes and stuff like that. I got my first real BMX bike and I uh, was exposed to that at the skate park. So I asked for one for, for Christmas when I was 13. And, um, you know, I, I, was also getting introduced to dirt bikes through a cousin of mine. And so I was doing all the things. And I originally two things. One, I wanted to, uh, my dream as a 13 year old was to play in the NBA one day, but then I also wanted a dirt bike. And so I got the next best thing, which was a BMX bike. And uh, that was largely due to my parents couldn't afford a dirt bike and things like that. So, um, you know, what, um, it worked out cause it's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, but it, it brought me around the world and it saved my life. But yeah, just getting exposed to all those things. I just really enjoyed being, you know, using my body to be physical and movement and just playing sports, being competitive with myself and other people. And so I was, you know, I got my first BMX bike. I was still playing all these sports. And then moving to high school, I stopped, slowly stopped playing other sports. And I think it was my freshman year. I didn't make the, the basketball team. And that was one of the signs where I was like, all right, well, I still got this BMX thing that no one can really take away from me. It's just what I do in my own time. And that was a uh, point where I started to really progress in the sport to where I just stopped doing anything else sports-wise. And at the same time, I was going to a trade high school to learn a trade. And my uh, trade of choice was landscaping. And I got exposed to that from uh, some friends in the family and they had their own business and I started working in the summers for them. And I picked that, you know, that uh, trade in high school. And it was really interesting because in 10th grade, the program you could go into was a uh, co-op program where if your grades are high enough, you, that trade you chose, you could actually go to work for two weeks and then go to academics two weeks and cycle on and off come your 10th year in high school or your yeah. second year, high school, 10th grade. So my sophomore year, um, I you know was approved for the the program, and so I go to work for two weeks, get paid, get credit for school, learn you know get the experience, and then I go to academics for two weeks, and I would you know have my shop theory class the first period of the day, and then go to regular academics, and I would do that on and off, which was really helpful because junior year I turned pro in BMX and I started competing professionally, and traveling around the country. And so I get to this point where I was actually going to school to learn this trade and academics and then going to work, making money to fund my travels and my, you know, uh, my bike parts and things like that. And so that's kind of how BMX just started to evolve and it started to take over. And then I get to the point where it was my, in between my junior and senior year, where the, uh, the boss of who I was working for gave me this ultimatum to pick between working for him, which was setting me up for the all, you know, almighty American dream, you know, getting me my own truck, my own trailer, my own mowers and all that. Like he did with all the other guys I had watched and grew up working with. He was setting me on path to run my own business. So he gave me a choice to pick between that and that lifestyle and that future or BMX. And as a 17 year old, I was just like, well, I'm competing professional. I'm living my dream. I could always go back and work later on, but I'm not gonna be able to be like 30 or 40 and actually, you know, pursue this. Then I have a chance now. 
So I chose BMX and that led me to dropping out of high school with the support of my parents and moving from Massachusetts to the Northeast of America down to North Carolina to train with, you know, my childhood hero, Dave Mira and the other pros that were living out there, which at the time was just like the Mecca of BMX. And as a 17 year old, they let me go and I showed them the work ethic, the responsibility by managing full-time athletic career, full-time working and full-time, you know, student until that point. And, um, you know, I, I made my dream a reality by putting myself in the position to be around the best with the best training facility. And in my mind, have the best opportunity to, to make that dream, you know, um, become a realization for me. And so I, uh, got exposed to a lot of things early on and I just happened by trying to do so many things. I found what really clicked for me and I, wasn't naturally gifted at it. It took me a lot of work. I actually had a lot of friends that seemed things came a little bit quicker to them, but I just loved it so much. And I had this vision I was focused on that I dreamed about. Literally, I had dreams. I still have dreams of me riding and I can feel it. And at the time I was dreaming about tricks that I eventually learned and just, you know, living that life and, you know, by uh, pursuing it and, you know, um, just going after it full on with the support of my parents, I was able to, to realize it. Let me ask you a question, Josh. When you always hear athletes to get to that next level, it's that that laser focus. And you and it's, I was having this conversation yesterday with my daughter, and it's 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 pretty incredible how um, with a school system, if you're not if a child is not so focused on their academics, I mean, all of a sudden they got ADD or they're obviously diagnosed or something. And it's just because they don't have the interest or the focus on that. Cause they don't have the passion or the love. So once you found that you had the passion or the love, how, how many hours a day were you focused on riding and getting better before you made that move to Carolina? Like how many, how I just want the audience to understand of how much time you put into it in that short period. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah. So um, to give perspective, so when I was still working and going to school, it'd be four, like when I was in academics, it'd be three o'clock. I would leave school. I would go to the skate park. The park closed at 10. So that was Monday through Friday. So, you know, six to seven hours granted, you know, resting and, you know, taking breaks. And on the weekends, the park opened up at noon uh, or at 10, no, noon on Saturday and Sunday and it closed at 10. So I was there 20 hours on the weekend. And to the point where they actually offered me a part-time job uh, to be like a, um, yeah. uh, just basically to wear a t-shirt that was the skate park's logo and just make sure ramps were good. Make sure kids were wearing helmets. Like I was there so much. They were like, you're actually doing what we pay people to do. Just be more aware. And so I actually started making money by doing that. But, um, and then when I was working, you know, I'd, I'd work, I don't know how many hours, but I get done around five or so. And I go to the park until 10. And on the weekends, you know, I would work some Saturdays and then after that same thing. And then on Sundays, um, and then when I left all of that to move to North Carolina, then it was just every day, you know, whatever time of the day we would ride 10 AM to 12 at, with Mira in the morning. And then after that, we would just ride endless hours, just filming and trying tricks. And yeah, it's a lot of hours. (laughs) When you look at 
when I, okay. And when you look at extreme sport athletes nowadays, physical, um, uh, their physicality, their, their work ethic, when it comes to actually working out nutrition, diet training is a huge part of what they probably do. Right. It doesn't matter whether at Olympic level or pro level or X games level, was that something you implied or that's something you just focused on your riding, or did you actually look at physical activity and diet and stuff like that as well? So this is a really fun question for me to answer because to your, to, I guess, make it short. No, um, okay. I was just in the mindset of just riding. And that was largely the culture back then still to a degree, because there's so many disciplines in the sport. There's the ramp riding, the freestyle aspect of ramp riding, which is what I competed in. Yeah. And then you have the street riding and then you have a hybrid of like dirt jumpers that just go build dirt jumps that are amazing pieces of art in the woods that yeah. never do tricks or never, never compete. But then you have the dirt jumpers that actually compete at dirt jumping contests. So there's like this divide and these multi-layers of disciplines. And so the culture back then, and still to a degree today, depending on who, you know, what discipline you ride was, we're not athletes. It's, it's the, the word training is frowned upon, if not hated is, on. Huh? And if you go to the gym, you're a jock and like, what are you trying to do? Like be an athlete. And then, you know, if you practice your tricks over and over, which is what most successful riders were doing then like if you promoted that, then you were like training in a different way. So to, to summarize that as, you know, I didn't really, I took the approach with traditional sports of basketball and, and baseball of repetition. And I would learn a yeah. trick and I would just drill it into my mind. I would learn this trick here and I would do it on everything I possibly could. And I would do it over and over again to where it just became something I did. I didn't have to think about like a habit actually. And then I just kept progressing with that. But then the whole, like the training on the side of the gym, that I didn't learn until I blew up my knee in 2013. So that was seven, eight years after. Yeah. About eight years after I turned professional, I blew up my knee at a contest and then started to take physical, you know, uh, training serious beyond just my sport. Cause we all had the mindset, Oh, we're riding all these hours. We don't need to you know, exercise. Like we're exercising enough. Yeah. Um, and then nutrition that wasn't until I got diagnosed with a brain tumor four years after I had turned professional and was like exposed to the simplicity of what you put in your body is what largely makes up, you know, the, um, material of what makes you. And I was just like, man, so it took these learning lessons to realize these things and to shut out the noise, um, that I was getting from the people and just really focus on becoming the best version of myself. So I had to you know, work through a lot of the, um, you know, the, the judgments and the fear of being judged and criticized and all that, which became my brand in BMX before I left BMX was like, I was known as the healthy guy. I was known as the guy, you know, that would eat avocados when no one else was, or like these types of things. And then it started to transition to where athletes would unfortunately get injured. They'd be like, Hey, Josh, like, can you help me? What's the best way to heal? Or, Hey, I want to perform better. And this is what's evolved today. It's like the mindset piece, the training and the nutrition. It's like, I get asked, but at the beginning, it was just, I felt alone. And I had like Dave Mira, you know, at the top who was doing all those things. So I was like, they're saying this, but that this guy is like, he's like the, our Michael Jordan of our sport and he's yeah. doing these things. So why is it bad that I do it? So I guess uh, to answer your question simply, it was none of that. It all evolved with my own um, adversities and learning the hard way, which is a big message that I promote today. It's like, why not be proactive and prepared? rather than having to react. And in my case, I had to react as a life or death situation, which largely put on um, visibility or display for me of like what I wasn't doing that I could have been doing. Let's, let's dive into that a bit. 
what was your first signs that you had a, a brain tumor? Like well, what signals, what happened? Were you dizzy? Were you like, what, what signals started occurring for you to find that out? So all of 2009, I've been going through these experiences on and off with it's starting with like these headaches and migraines that just got worse and worse throughout the year. Then I get to the point where they were so painful. I'd get nauseous and then I would actually start vomiting at certain points. And then the vision problems started to occur throughout the third quarter to the end of 2009 to some mornings or some days. So it was like, you know, when you wake up and you like, you rub your eye, cause it's like that foggy sensation and like blurry. And then like, it goes away. It'd be like that all day. And I would just be like, what, what's going on uh, to the point where I'd actually go to the eye doctor and they'd be like, Oh no, your vision's fine. And I'm like, well, I'm confused because I can't see. And they're like, well, you have perfect vision. Like there's nothing that is abnormal. Yeah. And um, it got to the point where actually at the end of 2009, uh, December, Dave Muir had an invite only contest to at his private training facility where he invited athletes from around the world to compete. And I was one of them. And the first day I couldn't practice because of the pain in my head was so, so bad. And uh, my vision was off. And at that point, I was just kind of riding off of muscle memory at that point. Cause I just accepted as a part of my reality moving forward. And I was like, well, they're telling me I'm fine. You know, every time I went to the urgent care, the emergency room or whatever, they would tell me, Hey, you know, you're, you're healthy, you're in shape, you're young, you just have headaches. It's quite normal. Here's some pain pills come back if you need more. And I was asking for scans. I just didn't know better. I didn't know like, Hey, I'm paying for health insurance. I deserve to get what I'm asking for. And, um, so all the symptoms were there, but I just, I wasn't, I didn't know, I didn't know better. And I just was like, Hey, the doctors tell me I'm fine. Who am I to challenge them? They're, yeah. you know, I'm a, you know, a quote unquote civilian. They're the expert. And yeah. I didn't know that I'm the expert of my own body and my intuition was, was leading me in the right direction. But, um, so it was about a year and a half until March of 2010, when I actually got a head injury, um, and I got a concussion or I got knocked out and we had to look to, uh, make sure that there was no, you know, bleeding or swelling, like classic TBI traumatic brain injury symptoms. And that's when they accidentally discovered the massive brain tumor that was, uh, eight or nine centimeters long, four centimeters wide and four centimeters deep pushing into my brain, which the location was on my optic nerve, which made sense of the vision problems and the, like all the pressure. And cause the type of tumor I had, it grows the meninges layer of your skull. So it's like the part of your skull or the part between your skull and your brain, there's like a layer you have, it actually goes down your spinal cord as well. So it started there and it was growing into my brain. So if you look at the MRI that I, I post every now and then on my Instagram page, you'll see how it was like this big, like long and like that wide and this deep, it was pushing into my brain and creating all that pressure, especially on my optic nerve. So, um, I didn't know better, but that's, why I share so much is because I come across so many people that have been diagnosed with a brain tumor with random, you know, checkup for this, or they had a head injury as well. Skateboarders, you know, other sports like hockey, uh, football, whatever they could diagnose the brain tumor. And it's just like, man, like how crazy is that? Yeah. Yeah. Scary, scary. So when you did get diagnosed, was it directly, let's, let's get it right into surgery. Like what was the process at that point? Yeah. So it was about um, a week in a couple of days, about a week and a half that my surgeon actually had to reschedule some patients that weren't as severe of a case as I was because it was that alarming to him. Um, so it happened relatively quick, uh, quickly, I should say. But um, yeah, it was an interesting process because when I first got diagnosed, this is something that I, I speak about because I don't get asked about this moment um, as far as like before surgery and what I'm speaking about is I normally get asked about the diagnosis. You know, what were you thinking? How did you feel? And to, to paint a picture, I was 21 years old and I was alone. I thought I was going in for routine head injury checkup and being told maybe another week or two off my bike. I, 
never would ever have fathomed having a brain tumor or was ever exposed to that idea. Um, so I'm sitting there waiting to get the results and being, you know, worst case scenario, Hey, you get two weeks off the bike. I'd already been like two days at this point. I was like, all right, it could be worse. And it got worse. Cause the doctor had told me they had had an abnormal scan. When he said that, I was like, what do you mean? Like, I know I tend to like fall asleep in MRIs and I twitch when I'm starting to fall asleep. I know if you move, you don't get a clear image. And so I asked him if that was the case. He's like, no image was very clear, but there's something in your brain that shouldn't be there. And it still hadn't clicked for me yet. And I remember laughing out loud, like literally laughing and saying, what do you, what, what do you mean? Like I, what, I couldn't have possibly put something into my brain. So what are you, what are you saying? And then he went on to say, well, at this point, we don't know if it's benign or cancerous. Um, but there is a, uh, a mass on your brain that, uh, needs to be taken out. If you want a shot at living and you, you'll probably never ride your bike again, just want to prepare you for that. And I said, I was just like, what do you, okay. And I just, there was so many things going through my mind and through my body that I didn't know how to process it. Cause in my world, I heard cancer, never going to ride your bike again. You may die. And so my world just stopped. And I just started to like, like, feel like I was floating out of my body, just watching this you know this horror movie that i was the main character in and um i i love um explaining like this when you watch a movie and something happens something significant and like it goes into slow motion and like if it's like a, a war movie or an action movie there's like that ringing in the noise in the ear noise that just kind of expands as the movie like pans out and that's just how it felt i was like disassociating it from my body and i was just like in disbelief that this was happening. And I remember seeing them saying things to me and nothing was registering. And I just ran out and, you know, tried to process it on my own. Um, but it was that week and a half, that transition um, before surgery, that things started to click for me in terms of rather than thinking about what if I don't wake up and, you know, the same questions that I had been diagnosed, I, when I got diagnosed, I was asking myself, you know, am I a bad person? What did I do to deserve this? Like, like, why is this happening to me? It started to switch because of uh, two main things. Um, the conditioning for my family to work for what you want and to have that belief in what you want. And my mom going through colon cancer and, you know, doing it strong and with a smile on her face and, um, you know, knowing I was a byproduct to her, I had that same courage and strength. But then also seeing Lance Armstrong, another cyclist, a little different of an objective, keep the wheels on the ground as much as possible. But in my mind, I was like, man, he went through something three times as worse. He went through brain, lung, and testicular cancer, and he fought his way back to the top, you know, several times. So I saw this model of excellence to me, the success. And I was like, I can do that too. And that's all I started focusing on was that vision for my life and what I was already doing and what I wanted to do when I woke up. How was I going to be better? How was I going to prepare more? How was I going to take care of myself better? How was I going to prepare more for competitions and things like that? So it was just that shift of focus that really helped me get out of that victim state of mind to the empowered state of mind. How hard it was it that phone call to call your parents and, and give them the news? Because it, it must have been such, I mean, that's probably the first, I'm assuming the first people that you wanted to grab and talk to because you're obviously away from home. You're 21. You're essentially still a kid. You're essentially yeah. still, you're a baby still. Like I, my daughter just turned 16. Like you're still a baby. Most 21 year olds are still living at home and trying to figure out their stuff. You're, you're in another state trying to essentially be a pro athlete and, and, and have a career. Right. So how was that phone call calling to your parents? It was near impossible for like four minutes. I remember being yeah. on the phone with my mom. Cause I, I first thought to call my mom, and, um, it was like three or four minutes that gone by. I just, I couldn't speak. It was like, 
you know, you have those dreams where like, no matter how hard you try to yell, nothing comes out. Yeah. It was like that. And there was a, a period of time where she started to understand like something was going on and she started to cry and ask me what was going on. And, you know, just, just tell me what's, what's wrong. And I just started breaking down and, um, I forget how it all came out, but I finally got it out and I told her what was going on. And then, um, I believe the next phone call was to my best friend who was my roommate at the time. Um, and just telling him, you know, what was going on. And he actually left work to come, you know, pick me up and just, you know, be with me and just drive me. Cause I, I was in no position to be driving. Um, but yeah, that first phone call, I mean, I've only had one other experience in my life where it was like that. And, um, it was the most like just challenging thing to, to feel paralyzed like that and just want to share some information and it not be able to come out. So from that process, uh, when they did test, I mean, what, what were the results and how was the process from there? And why I'm asking is I had, um, Obviously, you're here, you're healthy, you're doing amazing, you're doing amazing things, spreading your story. A close friend of mine that I grew up with, a um, uh, very close friend of mine, and we grew up together. We dated, our, our, our wives were friends when we all met. So we're like 16-year-old going on double dates, end up getting married roughly the same time, having kids at the same time. And at 32 years old, um, he uh, was at work and he was a mechanic. And he passed out. Uh, they rushed him to the hospital, and they found a, a tumor. And um, and he lasted roughly around seven months. It was already a stage four. And and we sat back and actually thought of his name was John. When we thought of John, like a year before, it was steadily every time we were together. He was always with headaches. Always like I was, my wife was like, "Oh, here's time." Like he was always complaining with headaches or always tired. So the symptoms, the signs were there, but he never took that initiative to go to the doctor. And I, and I think that's a lot of issues with a lot of males. I would say males in general, they just, they never really, everything's okay. They're trying to be the provider. They're never, they'll never put themselves in a situation where if they don't feel it, they go check it out or go check up what's, what's happening. Right. And, um, and, and vice versa, same with my dad. I lost my dad a year ago um, to um, uh, a severe heart attack and didn't drink, didn't smoke, uh, went on power walks every day, but the symptoms were there. He was seeing things happening, but he just, I mean, we're going through COVID. He would call the doctor. The doctor would be like, Hey, uh, you're okay. We're not taking in, in, in patient here. We'll talk to you over the phone. And and it was just delayed, delayed, delayed till it was too late. So from that process to surgery, um, was it benign or was it, what, what was the diagnosis with, with your tumor and how did that, how, how did the process continue from there? Yeah. So the process was, you know, open craniotomy, which um, took six and a half hours. And that was because once they got in there, they discovered that the tumor was wrapped around the main artery and the optic nerve. So they couldn't risk hitting either of them for the risk of death, paralysis, um, going blind, having a stroke and, you know, two pages worth of other risks. Um, So six and a half hours, you know, I think it was 75 staples and 16 stitches um, and four titanium screws. you know, I woke up and I could see my family, I could speak, I could move. Um, and it was just, it was probably one of the greatest days of my life because besides being born, cause I was, you know, had a second chance at living. Um, so then moving forward, um, I guess the process was just, you know, really understanding, you know, these different elements of being a human and our perspective and having the gratitude because I could have been worse off. 
and it was discovered to be benign. So then there was one, one, um, you know, check mark, you know, it's like, okay, it's not an aggressive form of cancer. It hasn't spread anywhere. It could be my spinal cord, which the type of tumor I had, um, was called a meningioma and they're common in the meninges layer of your skull and spinal cord. So, um, you know, one, it not being benign or it being benign was cool, you know, very good. And then two, it not have spread to my spinal cord was another, you know, bonus, um, you know, lo and behold, it did come back several more times, which we'll probably talk about. My most recent surgery was eight months ago, which I was awake for. Um, but to be at, in that position where it not be aggressive, not be spreading, and to it only be in the brain was, was something I was thankful for. And I know when I say that, especially when I'm on stage and I say, you know, at the time when I was living with four brain tumors a couple of years ago, I'd say, you know, thankfully I just have four brain tumors because it could be worse. I could have spinal cord tumors. I could have it spreading to other organs and things like that. But, it, you know, here it is. And uh, people pause and they're like, wait, what did you just say? And then I have to remind them, like, it could be worse. You know, that's my belief about uh, perspective in life. That was one yeah. of the first things that really stood out to me. And what I speak about is, you know, perspective is essential. How you frame things and how you look at things can make the difference of how you feel and then how you move throughout life. And that moment for me was a moment to not play the victim of my life and really take accountability for where I was, you know, even though like we agreed to being 21, you're still a kid. Um, you had, I think you have like four or five more years of your prefrontal cortex to develop, like to really understand who you are and about life and what you, um, you know, enjoy and things like that. Um, but there was something that clicked for me in that moment where I was like, man, like, I'm so grateful to be alive, things to be worse. And that's the first learning lesson I had consciously that taught me the power of perspective and a big message on my platforms is to teach people to be um, proactive with whatever it is that they want, be prepared. Cause I learned how much I was doing to have contributed to what I experienced in a negative context. And we'll never know because we can't go back and relive those moments. But I've taken on that life um, belief that we can either react to situations. And in some cases it's like mine, it's a life or death situation. And thankfully I was able to overcome it because I can share this message with people that, you know, can be proactive and, you know, other people don't have the fortunate reality of trying to preserve their life after a situation that teaches them, okay, now we have to make some changes and it doesn't work out. And I believe that I was able to survive it because of the message that I'm willing to share. So many people go through what I go through. Like it's nothing um, new. It's nothing special. Like there's a lot of people that go through what I've gone through. And I've learned that there's something inside of me that just has no shame in sharing it. And I want to share it because I want people to feel like they have a voice and that they're not alone. Cause I felt that way. I felt so alone and embarrassed and ashamed of myself for going through something that was out of my control. And now I've learned, oh, there's some things we can do to be proactive with optimizing our health, optimizing our mindset and potentially preventing these things from happening, which as we know, we have no control, but the more prepared we are, the more probability we have of experiencing what we want and not what we don't want. So yeah, I'm just really grateful that, you know, even though it's occurred multiple times, I've had multiple surgeries and radiation treatment and things like that. Um, I am able to be how I am today, functioning as well, being able to do all the physical things I want to, to have my sight, to have my hearing, to, you know, have, you know, reached out and connected with so many people like yourself and to be sharing this message to help inspire at the end of the day, if I, if nothing else, if all else fails and all I do is just help inspire someone to see themselves and their life in a new, um, lens or, um, and at a new angle 
to me, that's the first domino to change. Cause if you can just step outside of yourself and see something from someone else's perspective, then, you know, there's so much uh, possibility and potential to change and to create the life that you want. There's so many layers there. I was just letting you go, but there's so many things I wanted to dive into there. I mean, one thing you said, I'll just dive into this quickly. And then there's, I want to dive into something else, but I love when you said, um, when you're talking about the reframing of how we, our perspective on things, which is something you, your message is very strong about, because I talk about this all the time. I mean, even as a, as a dad, when I help other fathers and stuff, it's just, when you look at it, you hear a lot of dads, like, I got to pick my kids up from school. No, it's, you get to pick up your kids from school. I got to be home for dinner. I get to be home. It's reframing one or two simple words in, in, in how you say something just changes how your outcome is and your mindset. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. And I think it's so valid, so easy to do. And it just really changes how your perspective of everything is. So I love that you, you, you really dive into that because I think it's something with our day-to-day lives, we seem to miss on a regular basis. So I love the reframing part. I want to ask you a quick question too, is when you came out of surgery, when you went through such an intense surgery, your, 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 your speech, your, was there anything affected? Did you, you know, they say you smelled it. Was there anything affected through the process? So let me answer that and then remind me if I forget, I want to touch upon something you said about the whole I get to versus I have to. Yeah. I um, mean, just that the linguistics there. Yeah. But the only thing I went through, which is the funniest thing, is just it's so minor. The only thing I went through after surgery was about two or three weeks, I couldn't move my right big toe. Something just Interesting. was disconnected that I spent so much time visualizing and focusing <laughs> energy to move it. And then two or three weeks later, I could finally move it. And, um, so that was a, that was a big win right there. And another thing to be grateful for of all else, all the possibilities that could have happened and I could have come out with these different, you know, outcomes. Yeah. I wasn't able to move my right toe for two or three weeks. So it's just, it's it's, it's, it's so minor, but (laughs) I was just freaking out. Cause I was like, in my mind, I was like, is this going to spread? Like this, this inability to move this toe is like, is that going to be my whole foot and my whole leg? Like, cause in my mind, I had to sign off on paperwork to say a possible risk was paralysis. And I was like, it was so minor. It's so funny to talk about now, but in that moment when I'm in bed and I'm like, just move, just move. Like um, there's that scene of kill bill, like one of the original ones where it's <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. you know, I was just like, is this going to start spreading to my whole body? Like, am I literally, is this the, you know, the, the, the sign of paralysis occurring? Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's funny to talk about now, but in that moment I was just laying in bed. I was just like, what is going on? Yeah. Um, but back to the linguistics, you know, something that, really was the catalyst to my obsession with linguistics and like the subconscious mind and neurolinguistic programming and all these things about the brain and how we communicate and identify with things. And the whole thing of, um, you know, my belief and trying to help people discover this, this choice of you can identify with your circumstances, or you can identify with the vision that you're working towards, which is something I repeat to myself every day, especially with where I am transitioning from my career from BMX to what I do today with coaching and speaking is I'm not, I'm not fully experiencing and expressing myself the way I want to. And I have to remind myself, like I can identify with my circumstance, what I don't like, the lack, the problems, the stress, the overwhelm, whatever it is, or like doing things like this every day is, is super helpful for me because it's like one step further of being in that position of identifying with a vision that I'm working to create, which is always evolving. But that's a reminder is to become obsessed with the process and the journey and love it just like I did with BMX, which led me to success. So the moment that was the catalyst to that obsession with linguistics was when someone called me out 
that was another brain tumor survivor. This is back in 2010. I kept saying my tumor, you know, my tumor, this, my tumor, that. And they're like, why are you saying yours? Like, or in that case, my, yeah. I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's just, it's what I have or what I had they're like, no, it's the, and I was like, what's the difference? I was like, well, I love they that. said, do you want it? Do you want it to be a part of you? Or do you want it to be something that you overcame and get rid of? And I was like, it took me minutes to understand, but through the conversation, I was like, oh, so many people do this. And this is the greatest example. You know, my anxiety, for example, or like, you know, I, I'm always stressed. It's like, you're identifying with the circumstances of the emotions, which is yeah. the language of the body, but you're identifying with it. And you're reaffirming that you're someone who's anxious by saying, you know, my, my anxiety is always getting the best of me. Or like, you know, I can't do this because my anxiety or like I'm stressed out or I'm overwhelmed or, you know, I'm afraid, which yeah. I become the person that speaks about fear a lot. Um, and we can talk about that in a second. But that moment when someone called me out, they're like, no, it's a the start. Stop saying my tumors and say the. And that's something I've been able to help other brain tumor survivors or you know patients that are going through treatments. It's like, stop identifying with the disease unless you want it to be a part of you, which I'd argue you don't Yeah. the, the power of words, because what it does to the unconscious mind and then what it does to different glands and chemicals in our body, which we experience as feelings, the emotions, they're chemical byproducts of thoughts. Yeah. And when we identify with those feelings, that's triggering our mind to, to form a belief. And at our core, if we believe, if we believe that we're someone that has X, Y, and Z that we don't like, then that's what our unconscious mind is going to lead us to affirming about ourselves. That's its objective is to affirm our belief structures. And so it takes time, but reframing words and situations is very powerful. And it's not as cliche as a law of attraction. The law of attraction is like a band-aid, but when you actually de dive deep into the science around how the brain actually works, it starts with your thoughts because those chemical emotions or chemical reactions as emotions, yeah. the feelings, the language of the body, what we feel and how we feel is how we get influenced with behavior. And that whole equation creates the results that we experience in our reality, which is um, something I love sharing. A friend of mine shared this with me like seven years ago. It's an acronym, TEAR, T-E-A-R. Thoughts create emotions, which drives actions, which creates our reality or the results we see in our life. Yeah. So that simple equation, you can start at any which point, thoughts, emotions, actions, or results. Start any which way you want and whatever you don't like, keep tracing it back to the top of thoughts. And if you're thinking I'm a victim or this sucks, or I can't do this, which we all do, we're all yeah. human. That's our brain trying to protect us from the unknown. Start there. Now let's just shift the focus, shift the perspective. Instead of I can't, what would it take? What would it be like if you did? If all else you know, was irrelevant, money, time, ability, all those things, what would it be like to do that thing? You're going to get a different emotional experience. Then you're going to feel inspired to take new action. And with that equation, you can't help but get a new result. And yeah. so that's something that I, it started with that being challenged of my versus the, which you said, you know, I have to go pick up the kids. No, you get to, you get to go be with your kids. You get to pick them up, know they're safe and you have kids. Like that's a choice you have. You could not, you could be paralyzed, for example, or you could be so busy. You can't be with your kids. Yeah. Just that simple shift of words. It's really powerful. Yeah. And I mean, that goes in both directions. I mean, I, I'm, as I'm looking here on the screen, Ali, I am the greatest. That, that, that reformation of just in your mind of telling yourself steadily that you are great at something or good at something, it's just going to bring you to the next level, right? So you can look at it both ways. And, and going back to that, Josh, is, is, and you throw that word in prior, it was, is fear. And these are all, we talk about a lot of emotions we have, a lot of um, those feelings of fear. A lot of them 
are brought to us as children. And I talk about this all the time as well is, is, and I've said this a million times in our podcast. I mean, a lot of fears, they, they're, they're initiated from our parents as kids. You always hear your mom, like, don't touch the oven. You're going to burn your hand. Don't run down the stairs. You're going to fall. All these things as we grow up are just being locked by adults into your head. And you start building that fear of, I can't do this. Or you start focusing on other people's failures and it just starts adding, adding on. And as you get older, you're scared to take that risk. If you don't have a strong support system around you, like I, 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 I put my kids in every situation possible to fail. And when they fail, I make them learn from their lessons and redo it again. They fail, they redo it again till they get it done. And we do this consistently with everything, and especially my son. And, you know, I, you've heard a little part of his story, but it's been an example. It took him three months to hop on one foot yeah. and, and any other any kid at that age, after a week, two weeks, they would give up on doing it. And it was consistently every single day, you're going to do it, you're going to do it, you're going to do it till we got that. And then we'd hop in and it's just consistently growing. And, and he's just 14 and now we're hopping on one foot upstairs. It's always this constant progression, right? So it's, it's eliminating the fear that you're going to fail and literally putting that positive mindset that you're going to do it. And it's, it, a lot of it starts with just what you said, the words, how you frame something, how you word something. It goes a long, long way. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And uh, it reminds me, I forget her last name, but the UFC fighter Rose, I think she just fought. Yeah, 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 yeah. Her yeah. Um, her win in 2021, um, there was a clips of her going viral of just saying like, I'm the best, I'm the best. Yeah, and she went yeah. out and did it. And then I think in, she like broke down just emotional release. It was beautiful to watch when she won. And uh, she was like, I'm the best. <laughs> like, yeah. Joe, I think Joe Rogan called her out to like say it again. So it was just like, yeah, the power of words. I mean, and like you shared with, with your experience with your son, I mean, it's everything. It's like, you know, focusing on what we want and then that driving us forward rather than focusing on all the shit that we don't enjoy about our lives or in our past and being, you know, attached to it and identifying with it. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different examples. I mean, think and grow rich, the author, um, he talks about, I think it's that book where he talks about his son that was born without being able to hear. And he just kept, you know, whisk- have you read the book? I no, no. What's it? No, no, I haven't. Think- Think and Grow Rich. I think it's a it's a classic entrepreneur yeah. book. I, I've read a couple times now. Um, but yeah, there's a story he talks about with the power of of, of words and thought. And um, hit the long story short, I think it's that book. But um, if it's not, and someone knows the book I'm talking about, then they'll be able to correct you yeah. or correct me for you. But um, he just talks about how he just kept telling, you know, whispering into his son's ear that he couldn't hear, but like just like you're going to be able to hear one day or whatever it was. And then along the line, they came across a scientist or someone invented this hearing aid. And then when he was like, what, I think 11, 12, 13, he got to hear for the first time. And he talks about the message of there, just focusing on the intention for what you want and just the power of words, the power of belief, more importantly. And that's something that, um, you know, um, I just, I am such a big fan of because it's so easy to experience fear, which in my mind, um, I actually have a tattoo to cross my arm. Fears is a thought. And then thoughts can be changed. It's just, it's an emotional reaction to a thought. Yeah. And so if we can just change the thought, we can change the emotion, which then we can start taking new action and start to create a new belief about our lives. And um, one of my top three, four or five favorite books of all time is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Yeah, I read that. He, yeah. He talks about the inner core being identity. So yeah. much of us focus on what we want and then we go naturally like, okay, how do I make that happen? But very few actually think about who do I have to become yeah. In order to make that happen. And by you participating in that belief of who you are every day, at least a majority, this is like a vote. It's not a hundred percent. It's 51%. You get a majority of vote. 
then you're going to be participating in that new identity. And that's going to be changing your belief structure about yourself and your life. And then over time, you'll start to see the increases of probability of having what you want and the decreases of how much time it's going to take. But when we get so fixated on what we want and not um, focusing on the process and the identity, more importantly, then it's easy to get trapped in those circumstantial, circumstantial, like victim mentality. And, you know, this is never going to work or things like that. And it's, the human brain it's trying to protect you because the unknown is scary it's not familiar so it's obviously looking for threats but it's it's easy to get trapped there especially when you're in painful situations and that's why i share so openly about all the things i've gone through um because i know what it's like to feel like shit i know what it's feel like to be an immense amount of pain on top of doing it to myself by participating in something that i know the risk of that is very likely yeah. but i loved it and i wanted to do it and i was able to push through it because what I wanted to do with my life. And it brought me to where I am today. Did you go your story after your surgery and all that? Um, how long did you take before you got back on a bike? And so it's crazy. I was uh, clear to ride five weeks after the surgery. That, that quick. Yeah. Wow. I, in retrospect now, I think it was a little too soon, but I don't think my surgeon quite understood the magnitude of what I meant when I rode my bike, even though I showed yeah. him. I'm just saying the, 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 like the, the head movement, the shock on your neck on your, yeah. But, in his perspective, um, my understanding, the skull only requires four weeks to fuse back together and fully heal. So on that four week mark, I went and got an MRI, everything had healed nicely. The screws had set, the bone had, you know, fused back together. So he said, just take another week and then slowly get back into it. So when I say I started riding my bike five weeks later, I wasn't getting right into backflipping and spinning and all that stuff. I was getting on ramps for the first time barely, you know, getting in the air, just dropping in and, you know, flying out on top of them and just, it was super weird. It took me a couple of weeks actually to get comfortable with like my body space awareness. And, you know, um, just, you know, I just had my brain or my skull cut open, my brain messed with. So it just, everything was really weird. Um, but it took me even more. So a couple of months to get really comfortable with flipping and spinning. Cause when I started to jump and get comfortable where I was in space with my body and, and time and all that, then spinning just felt so foreign and flipping felt so foreign. Um, So that took a while, but then it took me like a year or two to really develop the level of confidence that I was going to be okay. And that I could still do this, even though I was doing it, it took me a while to mentally uh, get back to what I would call normal um, in terms of like my, um, you know, a belief in my ability. It just, it was, that was probably the biggest challenge was the mental aspect of getting back to it. Cause it was always that, that fear, that thought of, what if I hit my head again, which I did many times, which is partially one of the reasons why I stopped riding over two years ago was because I didn't want to, it wasn't, the, you know, the risk wasn't worth it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, even for you to have, be honest, have the balls that actually get back into it and, and, and have that chance at risk. I mean, you're obviously still 21. So, I mean, your, your mindset is, is more, well I, I would say it's adventurous. It's more of, I would say adventurous is probably the proper, the proper word. Cause I look at my son and my son, my son, I mean, he had uh, quite a few organs to, um, that were severely damaged at birth. And um, one of it was part of his um, part of his brain was severely damaged and he had to, his brain kind of rerouted and, and, and found new paths to do certain things. And, and that is my biggest thing. Cause I mean, I, I sell martial art and boxing equipment for a living. And, and, and I have connections with every gym and everybody wants my son to go train there. And that's like, I, I, I don't want to get hit in the head. Right. And my biggest thing is always protecting his head. And, and especially at this, this, this stage of growth and development, we've worked so oh. hard to grow. I do everything I can to protect his head. So 
how are your parents, when you said, I'm going to get back into riding, were they like very hesitant? Like where was their mindset as a parent to protect you? Yeah, I actually, um, I'm trying to complete writing my first book and I asked, I interviewed my dad a couple of weeks ago and I asked him that question. I was like, what, I've never really asked you this perspective, but like, what was, or this question, but what was your perspective of me getting back riding after all that? And he was like, obviously I cared about your health and I, you're an adult. I couldn't tell you what to do. And I just, you loved it. It, it, you know, you enjoyed it and I wanted to see you happy and successful in what you did. So yeah, I mean, I, if I had my pick, I wouldn't want you to get back doing it, but, um, you know, it, it was what you wanted to do with your life. And, you know, so in retrospect, I'm glad that you did because of all that you've been able to accomplish and overcome and yeah. help other people do the same. But my, my parents were always really supportive, which is, you know, very, I'm very thankful for that. Cause I know I've talked to a lot of people where they're like, my parents hate what I'm doing. They don't, they want me to do this and that. Um, but I mean, even back when I was 16, I remember I, I got knocked out so bad. My friend uh, said I started having a seizure on the ground because wow. I hit my head so hard and then I kept doing it. And so um, my parents' perspective, they were like, yeah, we're of course, we're, we're afraid, you know, that you're going to get hurt. You know, that's always been a risk. But I mean, what risk um, or where is that not a risk in life to various degrees? So, I mean, you could be playing football, for example, and have similar things, but you, know, you love it and it's brought you a lot of joy and success in your life. So and I was like, man, like, it's just crazy. Cause like now, like thinking about having kids, like, I don't know, like I can <laughs> consciously say now I don't like, cause my, my fiance is a former Taekwondo athlete. And so it's the same thing. It's like, I, I don't want my kids to go through any of the head trauma that I've gone through most of my childhood and teen and early yeah. adult life. But at the same time, is it going to be more damaging to the brain for them to have that, that resentment towards me um, and us, if we tell them we, they can't do something they want to do, you know, like what's, you know, could that lead to depression and this and that, like, I just, there's so many variables there. So I, I couldn't fathom that. I can consciously say, no, I don't want them to play football or contact sports or action sports. But at the same time, I'm like, I'd be kind of a hypocrite at the same time, yeah. but then it's like, well, what would be worse? Their mental state, if they're not allowed to do something they want, like, I don't, you put, you put them in, you put them in a situation where, I mean, as a dad and I help, and I, and I, I coach a lot of dads and help a lot of dads and you put your children in a situation where you give them as many options as you possibly can as, as young as they can. And you see where they, they, their mind, their passion drives them to, and then you just support it and you support it with your best of your knowledge, like your parents did. And, and luckily enough, my son, my son loves boxing, um, but we do pad work. He, he's, he's been part of gyms and, and, and stays away from the sparring aspect of it, but he still trains it and stuff. So it's, it's a situation of, of, of finding your passion and allowing them to their, seek their own kind of journey. Right. My, my daughter has been doing dance since she was four and she's does a high level. She's an incredibly high level, high performance dancer. And in the last year, she's looked at us and says like, I'm, I'm kind of getting done with this. And I'm like, you've spent all these years tons of money, tons of time, seven days a week. And, and now she's 16. She's trying to move on to another thing. And, and we're trying to figure out a sport. She's so athletic. We're trying to figure out a sport or something that she could kind of really focus on for a few years and see where it takes her. So it's, you just have to kind of, as a parent, just be as positive and as supportive as possible and, 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 and guide them in the right direction and, and give them the device. And they're going to, you know, it is, you're going to do what you want to do. My parents, if it was up to my parents, I would have been I mean, and, and they were doing it to protect me, but my dad worked 30 years at Ford Motors on an assembly line and got paid extremely well, had incredible benefits, incredible holidays. And he begged me to go there for years. He wanted to give me a job there. 
And from 17 on, I started my own company and I never looked back and I refused to and, and against everybody's will. And I had a lot of ups and downs and, and slopes. But at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, if you can stack up more wins and losses, you've done well. And, and, and I've been lucky enough to do that. But they were against me being an entrepreneur. They were scared I was going to fail. They didn't want to see me fail. They wanted me to have a steady career. And, yeah. and, and, but they also supported me and they allowed me to do what I had to do. Right. So that's all you could do as a, as a, as a parent is just really support and guide them, give them as much information as you possibly can. And then, and just let them do what they have to do. Right. And, and, and cross yeah. your fingers. They, they end up on the right side. That's all it is. So yeah. how many years of riding till your, you obviously tumors came back to you started to, you found, I guess, another diagnosis of, of the tumor coming back. So, uh, April, 2010 was the surgery, the first surgery. And then November, 2012, a routine MRI showed two recurrences on the same side of the brain due to those complications of the artery and the optic nerve. And, uh, they were about the size of a blueberry or smaller, I was told and what the image showed. So surgery, just the, the risk just didn't, you know, make sense to have an invasive surgery. So they recommended radiation. I didn't like the sounds of that because of what my mom went through and my, just my ignorance to it and all that. And so I, you know, went to Google and did some searching around and found a, a technology called uh, gamma knife radiotherapy, which is a more targeted form of uh, radiation via these different, um, it's like 180 degrees of different cobalt rays of radiation that they use a computer to actually pinpoint specifically where to target. So they're lesser degrees of radiation. And when they actually meet at the pinpoint location, then they're, you know, joint powerful enough to treat the area. Um, so essentially what it does is it like it zaps the area that they're treating. And so I did three sessions of that. And then um, for four years, they slowly shrunk little by little and then stabilized. And then to start off February, 2017, which was coming off of my best year competing in 2016, coming off of an ACL reconstructive surgery, which is where my fiance and I met, she was my athletic trainer through all that. Um, and we became good friends. I mean, six days a week, I was at the complex, just nothing to do as a pro athlete, but rehab and bug her about things. And, um, so February, 2017, getting ready for the next season, you know, super stoked focus on now mindsets become a big part nutrition, of course, um, you know, training in the gym, going through the rehab and the, you know, the, um, the, um, I guess the prehab before surgery to build up my muscles enough. Cause I was riding on a torn ACL for two years. Just, I didn't want to get the image. Cause I knew what they're going to tell me. I didn't need an ACL in my sport. Um, I just had a brace on, on and off, but I kept tweaking it. So where she convinced me to get the surgery. So I was able to do two months worth of prehab to build up the muscle, go through the surgery, do the rehab and then get into training. Um, and then, you know, off that year competing with, in 2016, I was hyped and I was getting focused on the next year to compete February, 2017, another routine MRI showed the two masses on the left where the original tumor was located and we treat with gamma knife, they're still stable. Now two other ones had popped up on the right side of my brain. And that's when they shared the hypothesis that it could be a disease called NF2 neurofibromatosis. And, um, it's just basically in layman's terms, it's a genetic disorder that creates the type of meningiomas in the brain and the spinal cord tissue of the meninges layer. And, um, the only way to test is by a biopsy, but again, they're so small, it wasn't worth opening my skull up to do a biopsy. 
And that's when at the same time, I was learning from 2013 to that moment, 2017, I was learning more about metabolic health and what that really means and how we can test for it to get um, you know, our biomarkers for it. And that was largely due to Dr. David Perlmutter's book uh, in 2013 called Grain Brain and talking about our blood sugar levels and how that correlates to our brain function, health and resiliency and longevity. And um, it was the first time I ever heard of the, the word ketosis or keto or metabolic health. And over the years, I just became obsessed with it. I became obsessed with the brain, of course, but how to you know, empower myself through metabolic health, which is my choice. I choose this over that. I choose to sleep more or less, like all these things that impact our metabolic health. And it's more than just metabolism, what people think of like, oh, my metabolism is fast or slow or these types of things. It's actually, you can test it. So on one side, we have vegan diet. On the other side, complete opposite, we have the carnivore diet. In the yeah. middle, we have all these different ways of eating they're all just strategies that eliminate this over that yeah. with a metabolic approach and why ketosis, which is a metabolic state of creating yeah. ketones yeah. in your body yeah. is so, so different. You can actually test your blood to see if you're doing it correctly or not. Yeah. yeah. You can test your blood to see where your glucose levels are, where your A1C is, if you're making ketones or not. And so what he was talking about with metabolic health and epigenetics, the ability to change our gene expression to lower or increase inflammation and all these other factors when they told me, Hey, we think it's this neuro, uh, fibromatosis. It's just genetic disorder. The first thing that popped in my mind was epigenetics. That I learned from Dr. Um, David Perlmutter and then how ketosis profoundly increases the ability to, to, um, turn on favorable gene expression. So reducing inflammation, reducing reactive oxygen species and, you know, all these other mechanisms. So I was like, all right, I've been eating a low carb paleo-ish diet thanks to the work of Mark Sisson that I got introduced to in his work and the primal way of eating and living. And I was like, I'm tracking my macros, you know, but I'm, I'm not in ketosis one, cause I haven't tested. I don't know. And I could fast a little bit more. I was doing a little bit of intermittent fasting, but I was like, let's, let's change up my macros. Let's be at 50 grams of carbs or less a day. Let's test my blood. Let's add in some, um, you know, intermittent fasting and let's see how it goes. And I did that for two years and, you know, routine checkups, the two new tumors hadn't progressed. So in the matter of the time for them to show up, I was doing yearly MRIs in that one year span, they found them year after year after that, moving forward, there was no progression. And then, uh, moving forward. So that was 2017 and where I got introduced to, or where I started incorporating metabolic health as a therapy and as a lifestyle improvement. And then it wasn't until May of 2021 where I had a seizure in my sleep. And thanks to my fiance being trained in, you know, sports medicine and being able to, you know, understand how to take care of those things. She was able to be there to support me through it, but that's when they diagnosed me with a fifth brain tumor. So in a matter of six months or so, whatever it was at the time for my last MRI checkup, a fifth brain tumor occurred. And this was rapid. It was the size of a golf ball, but in my prefrontal lobe, a little bit to the left. And that seizure is what led me to the MRI that discovered it. And so um, that's when I learned I'd have to have a second uh, surgery 11 years later from the first one. And um, the, the really interesting story to, to tie all this together is back in 2017, I got introduced to Dr. Quinones at Mayo Clinic. Mutual friend of ours connected us as our passion for the brain and to help other people, you know, improve the brain health and him save their, their brain. And fast forward four years later, I learned I'd have a second surgery. I learned in May, the next month, we already planned on moving here to Florida. And I remembered Dr. Q 
is in Jacksonville. We're moving an hour and 15 south of Jacksonville. Let me reach out to him and see if he'll be able to perform the surgery. And it worked out so well that my health insurance being self-employed switched over. And then two weeks later, he got me into surgery. And because of him taking the approach of being awake or me being awake for surgery and using brain mapping tools to test like probes and all this to test tissue to be more aggressive with the surgery, he was able to get the fifth golf ball size tumor out and all the other ones that were in there for, you know, however many years. So for the first time in 13 plus years, I'm actually tumor free today. So we talked about linguistics earlier for four years, me being on stage and on podcasts, I shared the narrative that I live with four brain tumors and yeah, it could be worse, but I'm grateful to just have those four. So now I've recognized how maybe that wasn't the best way of approaching language. And now I can confidently say I'm tumor free. So my whole narrative of my life has shifted because of that. And it's just another layer of um, storytelling and being able to relate with other people. Um, so going into the uh, surgery, I saw an opportunity for two things. One, I was afraid of being awake in 2010 for surgery. I couldn't fathom that. Yeah. So now I was excited because I was like, I'm very interested in different levels of consciousness as a human being. Um, anything from psychedelics to float tank therapy to meditation. Like I, I'm just really obsessed with getting to alternated states of consciousness. Yeah. I'm about to be awake for surgery. Who gets to do that? Like this yeah. is, I can choose to be anxious or I can choose to be excited, the same level of energy. And I, I'm, I'm excited for this because I'm, it's a challenge. I'm afraid of course, yeah. but I'm more excited because there's a human experience that not many people, even if they wanted to, would be able to go through. Number two, here's an opportunity for people that have been following me for some time, maybe the entire journey, maybe just recently. Here's an opportunity for me to let them in to see how this theory that I talk about is actually real. And I'm not just preaching. I'm actually talking about real life experience and how applicable it is from my life and how it can be applicable for other people in their lives in various different ways, bringing them through my journey into awake brain surgery. And so I got to one, change the narrative of my life. Thanks to Dr. Q. And then I got to allow people in to see 11 years later that I'm still going through this. I may look like I'm not but this is still very real. And I want to make it really easy for people to understand of how these things I've learned and talk about how they can implement it in their lives and see the benefit, you know, in a matter of time. So read me through that day. Like you're saying your, your different levels of consciousness. Were you like, when they were doing it, were they, like, I'm assuming when they were talking about the tissues and the nerves, they were asking you testing, like talking to you, t- asking you to move certain body parts. Like how would that work? Were you, were you, you had to be obviously tied down. I'm assuming. No, uh, you weren't. So, I'm just thinking for you moving, right? Yeah. I mean, you're looking at yeah. a, 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 a micro movement. I think damage. They had right? my skull in a frame. I okay. didn't see it, but there's a Netflix series called the surgeon's cut. And they actually featured Dr. Q in the second episode titled the sacred brain. Yeah. The first episode was a heart surgeon. And then there was Dr. Q and they bring you through um, a patient going through awake brain surgery. So then they also tell Dr. Q's amazing story. Um, but yeah, so I think I was, my head was in a frame of course, Yeah. but I don't remember them strapping me down. I'd have to double check on that, but I wasn't like all like full on like strapped yeah, down. Yeah. Um, I think they had, if I remember correctly, they I definitely had a strap on my left arm and that's where they had the IV and everything. Yeah. But I don't know if like my legs and my arm, I don't even remember. I don't even think I was focused on that, but I was yeah very much awake. Um, so the only time I've been in an OR room where I actually saw it was this one. And so yeah. they, they bring me in. Uh, but before that they put 
two injections here and two back here with this long ass needle to like numb my entire skull. And so they gave me a sedative to help me relax a little bit before they did it. And they made a joke about it. Like, Oh, guys with tattoos are usually the the most afraid of needles. And so they had someone standing in front of me to like catch me if I passed out. And I was like, I'm going to be fine. Like I've, (laughs) I've gone through this before. I used to get my elbow drained with these needles and stuff. Um, so it's all good, but I just remember just going like this and just woke, waking up after I fell into this person's like arms holding me, <laughs> waking up and like yeah. my face is super numb and I can't feel anything. Like I remember sending videos to Jackie and I was just like, I was like, I can't feel my eye. And I poked myself in the eye. I was like, oh yeah, I think I just poked myself in the eye. But I was like, <laughs> I feel like my eyebrows are right here. And I was like, I can't feel anything. Yeah. But um, that was the first step. And then they bring me into the OR and I see everything. It was really weird. Um, as you can imagine, but seeing all the tools, all the lights and like this bright room and they get me in position. They put me on the surgical bed they get the IV in and, you know, I'm laying there. So I can't obviously see anything and there's no mirrors or anything, but to my right, sitting there in the chair is my nurse who I'm going to be communicating with. And then behind me, I hear Dr. Q and, you know, he um, comes by and says, you know, hello. And, you know, walks with it, sees how I'm doing. And, um, you know, he tells me what's going to go on and gets back behind me. And uh, I'm laying down, just propped up enough to where I can see the nurse in front of me. Yeah. But they put the IV in. They tell me they're giving me another sedative to just you know help me relax. And I remember drifting off to sleep a little bit. And then I remember coming to with them um, taking the screws out, the old screws, and then them gr- like cutting through my skull, which Ooh. was crazy because you don't feel anything, but you can you're feel your body shaking. You're yeah. hearing things. And the best way I can describe when they were actually cutting into my skull was like this, it felt like they had a grinder just like hollowing out my skull just like the, the way it like felt, it was super weird. And then, um, I was just like, all right, like I'm kind of sedated a little bit. So I'm like, this is weird, but like this, I'm kind of like loopy at the same time, but like very coherent. And, um, how long was this, how long was this surgery? I think it was about three hours. So three and a half hours in terms of them opening me up and then closing me the yeah. surgery itself. I want to say Dr. Q said around two and a half ish hours, but from, you know, having to like stitch me up and redo everything. Uh, but his actual being in there was only about two to two and a half hours, if I remember correctly, but all said and done through three and a half. Yeah. So I actually woke up to them taking the screws out, them cutting me open and then it was just like on and off drifting in and out of like, you know, him talking to me, feeling these weird sensations of like, the best way I can describe it is like, it was like a sharp pressure. And I, that's what he told me is like, if you feel anything, you let me know and we'll make sure we apply more anesthesia, which is when I learned that I blow through that stuff really quick. And um, that he made a joke after he's like, man, you went through that stuff real quick. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but during it, because it was in the front, frontal lobe to the left, I had to make sure my right um, motor functions were working. So there was moments where I had to listen to sounds and I had to make sure that I could hear things. I had to say things. I had to, you know, they'd give me a couple of words. I have to repeat them after to see if I can memorize them and, or remember them. But then there was moments where he's like, all right, I want you to lift your right hand or your right leg or move your toes on the right or things like that. Like all these different tests I had to actually yeah. perform um, yeah. in, in the surgery. I had to actually participate in it. So, um, was this, was, was this was this was this did you video this at all or no so they actually yeah they did they so did. um i'm working with them and legal to uh hopefully get the footage of everything so that way I can have you have you have you ever gone back and looked at, have you gone back and looked at it or no 
No, I'm still waiting on them too. I need to follow up actually to um, their legal department has to clear it first. So, uh, cause I want to make a documentary um, yeah. of my lot, at least last 12 years of my life yeah. someday here soon. So um, getting that footage would be really uh, to me, really cool to be able yeah, to yeah, have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's crazy, crazy, crazy. So from the time you finished surgery um, you said you're obviously awake the whole time. How many, how many, how many days did you spend in the hospital to you're actually like and this time obviously there was no other past symptoms i mean you say all your toes you're feeling everything was fine at the end of this one right yeah yeah, yeah there was no symptoms prior other than jackie and i going over like there was some occurrences of headaches here and there but yeah. n- nothing like the average person doesn't complain about so i was like maybe i was dehydrated or maybe i was stressed or so i was like you could say that that's why but um yeah no after surgery there was there's was no complications at all i was home um, just under 48 hours, um, that quick, huh? Yeah. And I actually, the next morning I started, you know, I had to get up out of the bed and get into the wheelchair to get the MRI, which Dr. Q was like, we're 99%. I can't say hundred, but we're 99% sure I got all of it and didn't damage any healthy tissue. Um, but then that's when PT started, I had to get up with a walker and just, you know, make sure I can move and, um, everything was working fine. I felt strong. And, um, I actually had the video of the, the, um, the moment we pulled into the house and me getting out of the car and walking to grab my backpack out of the back. And then, uh, my fiance, Jackie yelling at me, cause we had a package. And I was like, Oh, we have a package. And I like squatted <laughs> down to keep my head level to pick it up. She's like, don't pick it up. I was like, I'm picking it up and then, uh, open the door and all that. But, um, yeah, it's just the way science has evolved and surgeries and like that to be awake is one thing. And then to be home under 48 hours. And then I had no restrictions um, of me just doing daily things. I just had to take it slow and uh, obviously try to do my best to not be leaning forward and to get my blood pressure, heart rate up, things like that. But they're like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're able to you know move around the house. We actually encourage that. We want you to be you know doing the normal things, but just don't lift anything over 10 pounds for a week and then slowly increase that as we go. And, um, what was it? Three, four weeks. I was back in the driving range. Just, you know, I wasn't able to use my driver. That was the only yeah. restriction I had at that point was just, you know, just working on chipping and my irons, just, you know, no crazy hard swinging. Um, and then I think it was about seven, eight weeks. I was able to play full round of golf and, um, it was pretty, pretty interesting experience. And it was weird. Um, I guess not weird, but like humbling because the first couple of days being home and the first week I actually had to have my fiance help me like shower, like wash my hair because of the incisions. I had all this blood and glue that we kept having to like comb out and everything from the surgery. And, um, it was, it was wild, but, um, I tried to do my best to document as much as I could either written or spoken. Um, and when applicable video of, um, before the day of, and then after, and something that I think was really important talking about mindset is the morning we woke up, my fiance and I, she was like, she literally said, this is game day. It's game day. Everything that you've been doing the last 11 years of your life is to prepare you for this moment. And that just helped me kick in the gear, like any other day competing or something. I was like, this is what I signed up for. This is what I've been preparing for. And, you know, I'm gonna let people know like, Hey, I'm afraid, you know, like, of course I could lose my life. I am about to be awake for surgery, but everything I've been practicing and sharing it's, it's real to me. The mind, the mind is so powerful. 
Yeah, it is. And I've learned that through my experiences and thankfully so. Otherwise I may still be that person that I used to be complaining about this and that and not having any accountability, therefore not having power to change it, which is, I think something that's easy to overlook, especially when we're in painful situations. And yeah, I mean, it it goes back to the word you heavily used at the beginning was perspective and, and you can use that towards anything in life. And you could always have that mindset where as bad and rough as life feels at that moment, there's always someone going through something worse than you. And I, I mean, I'll give you a, a quick little example. Like when my son was born, uh, he had to, um, there was, there's one, we're very blessed. We have one of the greatest hospitals in, in the world in Toronto called Sick Kids Hospital. And the hospital that night when he was born, um, they, uh, I'll give you a quick little two run, two second rundown. So when he was born, he was pronounced dead at birth. They had to revive him. Um, the doctors at the delivery hospital didn't know how to deal with it through a whole different circumstances. It's a long story, but we ended up forcing them to call sick kids. We ended up doing it actually, what my sister did, call, call sick kids. A doctor at sick kids hospital over the phone um, kind of instructed the doctor there what to do and how they get the fluid out of his lungs. And, and they started thing. We got him to revive my son. And when they were bringing him, the sick kids hospital was full. So they had to bring him to another hospital. It was almost an hour and a half drive. And they said, there's a good chance he's not going to make that drive. And through, as they were leaving the hospital, um, another baby passed away at sick kids and a a bed opened up. And when he went there, he was on the fourth floor, which is um, ICU, the most intensive care. There's six beds in this place. Uh, He spent almost four months of his life there. And those six beds were constantly rotating. And as bad as our situation was, I was looking at other parents losing their child on a regular basis. So it's this perspective that every day was a blessing. Every day was another moment to have an opportunity to get better, to get stronger. Right. So having that mindset and a lot of, I'm going to tell you a crazy story, Josh, Uh, me and my wife would be there. We would drop my daughter off at daycare. We'd be there from seven till five 36 PM every single night. And then our phone would be on all night. And, and I took kind of control of the whole scenario. I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a control freak. And I thought of me being an entrepreneur where um, he has seven departments following him. So at sick kids hospital, they have a department for each organ. They had uh, neurology for his kidneys. They had, they had every department had um, they would have a team of six or seven people in the morning. One representative of each team would meet at a circle table and they would plan the day for what they were going to focus on that day. And after a couple of days of being in the hospital, that table would not start without me sitting on there. I wanted to learn everything and I would take notes and I would learn everything. I would come home and I would study it every night and I would go back there the next day and, and kind of try to be part of the whole process. So anything at night, if they had to do blood work or MRI or anything, they would have to call me for approval before they would do it. That was kind of the initiative. So I would somewhat control his whole scenario. And me and my wife would be sitting there and we just sit there. We would literally sit there by his bed um incubator at that time we sit there for how many hours a day from 7 10 12 hours every day and we would always look around in the room um it was pretty much always empty and a lot of parents were never there and one day i looked at i looked at one of the nurses like where are all the parents and she said honestly jeff shows that's the reason your son's going to make it out of here i i i almost get tears every time i think about this but your son's going to make it out of here because you're constantly here that love that appreciation that he knows you're here. A lot of parents did not want to build an emotional attachment to their child because they knew they were going to lose their child. And they would show up there just for meetings or on the weekends to see their child. 
They would go on with their day-to-day life and show up in the evening to visit him or they show up on the weekend. And I would sit there. I'm like, are you kidding me? She's like, yeah, that's, that's what really happens. A lot of parents don't want to build that emotional connection when they might lose their child. So it's that perspective of just like my mindset was, if I'm going to have a day with him, I'm going to spend the most I can with him and, and having that perspective. And I think that's something that really, I, I changed when he was born because I wasn't like that. I was more selfish and it, a lot of it changed in my perspective and my, in my understanding of living kind of with no regrets and trying to do everything to the max. A lot of that changed when my son was born. So it's, it's it, perspective is everything that perspective is everything. And, and, and if people could really learn to use that and learn how to reframe words and learn how to look at things in a positive way, life changes. And even everything you went through, Josh, I mean, when it comes back to my friend, John, when he was diagnosed, he changed. He didn't want to be around people. He didn't want to see people. We would, we would call and he wouldn't answer his phone. He, he literally shut off his, his life. He shut everybody down and he got so depressed and he lasted seven months and, and his body just shut right down. And, and, and that energy and that positivity and everything, I'm, I'm sure it was a huge factor in, in how you progressed and how, and how amazing you're doing. Right. So congrats on all that as well, man. Yeah. Thank you. And I mean, what you were sharing about you and um, just being there for your son and the other parents, maybe not. I mean, it made me teary eyed too, because it's just, you know, um, to be curious of like what those parents were going through and their mental state and like their fears and what they were feeling and like, and them not wanting, like you said, to maybe create that connection of emotion with their, their child that they didn't maybe see um, a future for it. It's just, um, you doing that and going through that as challenging it probably was for you. I mean, it's the difference, you know, and yeah. I've heard of so many different doctors and surgeons say the same thing. Like this person had all the probability of making it, but they got the diagnosis and they gave up inside and they didn't make it or they came out and they're fine, but like they're afraid of life now. Or yeah. on the flip side, this person had low probability of surviving or being functional. And we hear so many stories of that and their will to live and to thrive is what got them to be where they are today, alive and thriving. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of cliche. We hear it today, but like your energy and your thoughts or everything. And it's like, these are examples of like how true it really is. And thankfully now we have, uh, for people that need to see the science, we have neuroscience and epigenetics showing largely how real these things are. Yeah. Um, and so I just, yeah, I mean that, that what I went through was, you know, many wake up calls to teach me about perspective and the lack of control that I thought I had in life. And, um, but also, you know, two other things that really stand out to me, which are the, I, um, have learned to enjoy sharing because of what it's helped me do in a therapeutic sense, but it's what it also helps other people do in processing is, you know, in 2016, um, Mira passed away, was diagnosed with CTE. He took his own life. And then two years later, my brother, my younger brother passed away in a similar manner. And that perspective of like asking myself for years, why am I still here? Like I'm the one that went through all this and like, they're gone. You know, I didn't really, at the time I wasn't able to think about what they were going through and I can be empathetic and curious of that. Maybe they had going, they were going through stuff, which I know they both were in various different ways, but maybe um, it was more um, severe than I tend to think, which is often the case outside looking in, it's never um, equal in terms of what someone is experiencing in their own world. But that perspective of like, man, like I'm still here. Like, what is that reason? And that's, that's, you know, why I do what I do today. Cause like, I've, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I choose to believe is 
I'm still here having conversations with someone like yourself that's gone through what you've gone through and we've gone through in our own ways to share with other people about the power of perspective and how your life could be worse and the fact that you're alive and able to change your tomorrow by what you do today. And it starts with your mindset. And we talked about how that drives emotions and actions and all that. So, um, you know, I think that's at the forefront of everything is perspective and perspective to me is essential there's so many other examples I'm sure both of us could talk about for days of how that's shown up in our lives. But at the end of the day, like I said, back to something I said earlier, if all else fails, if I can get someone, get someone to, you know, be inspired to look at something from a new perspective, then to me, that's the first domino to knock yeah. over for the rest to just follow after. So um, I appreciate you sharing that with me. And I'm um, you know glad that uh, your son's doing well and that you guys, you know, believed in him and wanted to see him do well. And, you know, we're having this conversation today. Yeah, I love it. I love it. This has been, uh, and there's so many, we've been at it for a little over an hour now, and there's so many things I, I, I think we need to continue this conversation in another day and have another part of this. Cause, um, uh, I want to talk about like your, your metabolic diet. There's other things I want to talk about, but we'll talk about another day. This has been amazing. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Uh, no, well, one, thank you. I mean, I'm always happy to have a conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing you and Kamalita talk on the 17th, I believe it is, the yeah, summit. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm blocking out the day so I can hear everyone share. Um, but yeah, I think the, the one thing I want to say is to reiterate the fact of, you know, fears is a thought and your yeah. thoughts can be changed and you can choose to identify with your circumstances or you can choose to be identifying with the vision you have for your ideal life. And it's just a matter of focus, a matter of shifting that perspective and where your focus goes, your energy flows, the good old Tony Robbins said. Yeah. Um, and it's it's true. I mean, it, it's shown up in your life. It's shown up in my life. And uh, at the end of the day, it's just what we choose to believe in or not. So um, I just love, you know, challenging people to believe in their vision rather than the circumstances. Yeah. And that word and that simple word of believe is so powerful. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you actually look at my post, I probably did a post maybe two years ago, three years ago, but my kids as a young, from a very young age, I got these, these wooden signs custom made and I put them outside their bedroom, bedroom door right above. And it says, believe in yourself. And I would mm -hmm. make them read it, and they still till this day, they read it out loud all the time. So having that, uh, that, that, that mindset of just that self-belief and, and building it and building it and building that into your core, into your almost into your DNA is so powerful, no matter what you do or what you, your path is in life. So I love that as well. So this has been that awesome. Reminds me, have you, have you seen the show Ted Lasso? No. Oh, uh, with Jason Sudeikis. Oh, it's a great show. There's a uh, two seasons so far. It's a great, it's a great take on mental health. Um, long story short, he's an American football coach that goes to coach European football, which is okay. Really I've seen the commercials. Soccer. Yes, yes, yes. There is in the locker room. He puts up a sign that says "Believe or Belief." I've somebody has said that. Somebody has actually yeah. said that to me already. You, you sharing that? Just that was the first thing that popped in my mind. Yeah, so somebody I would said highly that to me. encourage you to watch that show. It's a beautiful show, and um, it's interesting to see Jason Sudeikis play that role and so well which is i mean they won so many awards when it came out but yeah i think he's a, of, he's a very is it a serious role or a comedic role well it's very serious but with yeah. his his humor added to it so it's it's got that it's, he's got a very dry sense of humor yeah it's like, funny like, because, i love him i love him from horrible bosses yeah so you, he's yeah, awesome I, yeah he's one of my favorite actors and but he brings this like he has a southern tang to yeah. his accent and it's just like this whole character he plays but like his witty funny you're probably the third person to tell me to watch that show so now i'm now i'm, now I'm gonna kind of oh, you gotta, walk into it I, I i'm looking forward to the third season so much it's just such a beautiful take on mental health and belief and just support community it's i love to that. see him playing that role but 
you know, bringing his character that he normally does to the table. It's, yeah. it's awesome. But yeah, you sharing that about the, the, um, believe signs yeah. for your children. Like that just reminded me of it. I love it. I love it. Uh, where can our audience get a hold of you? Uh, really anywhere. Uh, my website's probably the best one-stop shop, but, uh, it's joshperrybmx.com, but, um, all social media is just Josh Perry BMX, most, uh, active, um, email, Instagram and LinkedIn. I've been trying to put a lot more emphasis in LinkedIn lately, which is, I think where you and I were first connected or maybe it was. Instagram. Yeah, I was, it was through, through, uh, Jordan did a post and tagged us and that's how I saw you. For yeah, the first that's right. Time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I'm more of an IG guy. I'm trying to learn LinkedIn a bit and trying to get into it. I've been using it on and off, but it's, it's a powerful tool for the business world. Where's your, I'm going to ask you one last question. Where, where's your involvement with BMX now? Days? So I'm two, two years and four months removed personally from riding my bike. Yeah. But do you teach it? Do you, are you involved in it at all? So, um, I was coaching a young athlete from Slovenia for two or three years. And, um, with the pandemic and everything, um, that kind of came to a halt because they were actually traveling here and flying me out there. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he, um, he's doing really well and he takes, you know, we went in all in on mindset nutrition and he was actually working with a strength conditioning coach out in Slovenia and all that. Um, and he's progressed so, so beautifully, but, um, since the pandemic and stuff, we, you know, obviously had to, to stop and we were doing a lot of remote things, but I can still keep in touch with him and his family. And he's, yeah. uh, he's got, he's, um, got his whole management team and all that helping him out and stuff. So, uh, I'm so it's so crazy. Him, the whole, the whole, how all these sports have evolved. Everybody has managers. Now everybody has yeah. teams. Everybody's got trainers and nutritionists and yeah. So cra- And they're from such it. a, it's from such a young age, such a young oh, age. Yeah. Like I, feel, I yeah, couldn't I even do like what he's, he's 16 or 17 now. And what he's able to do on his bike, I didn't have the, the strength and the bikes were so heavy back then. I couldn't even have possibly yeah. done anything. Yeah, the sports, the sports, the technology sport. and everything. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. It, it's, it's, um, there were actually, there was a video yesterday I was watching and it's showing the, uh, the involvement of, of, of sport or humans. And it shows Olympics in, I think, 1930s, somebody on a pole vault running, jumping, just almost like hopping over it and doing a stance. And everybody was like clapping. And then it shows the guy from the last Olympics doing like five flips on it. It's like the involvement of athletes is, is incredible over the, over like a 60, 70 year span, which when you think about it, it's not a long time. Yeah. yeah. And another thing too, when you, when you grow up witnessing a certain level and that's like the standard, and then you make that happen sooner because that's what they, you know, they took how much time to get to that new level. Yeah. And that was something that one of um, the guys I looked up to, to quite a bit when I was younger, he said, he's like, he's like, I didn't know that they rode differently. I just watched all these video parts and I thought they just did all those tricks all the time. So I just tried to do that every day to just consistently do all my biggest tricks. Yeah. So that became his new standard. And now the next generation, their yeah. bikes are lighter. It's always technology. So it's like their yeah. standard, like what we see at the top. That's yeah. like a 14, 13 year old's new standard now. And it just, it keeps evolving. Oh, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's great. It, it's, it's, uh, uh, there was one athlete that just passed away recently from, from Canada. We obviously love hockey here and it's uh, a player from Montreal Canadiens, Guy Lafleur just passed away. And this guy before every game would sit in the arena. He, he actually understood the mental aspect of the game. And this is going on whatever, probably 40, 50 years ago, he was sitting in the stands before anybody would get there and he would visualize the whole game. And he was one of the yeah. greatest players of all time, but he would smoke a pack of cigarettes before every game. Oh, you wow. think about athletes, how they've evolved. I mean, you think of two heroes, your baseball players, they would finish a game and go out drinking. And it's the athlete in general has just evolved drastically now. I mean, their, their health conscious is, is at another, another level. It doesn't matter what sport you're playing. Yeah. At. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is wild. This has been awesome, brother. Thank you so much. And uh, we're going to keep it going and I'll, and I'll obviously see you on the, on the stage and uh, we'll keep in contact and keep the flow going. Sounds great, Jeff. I appreciate you taking the time and having me on. Thank you, brother. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank our guest, Josh, for taking time as busy schedule to be a guest on the Jeff Nozings podcast. Such an incredibly inspiring story. If you guys enjoy this podcast as much as I have, like all weeks, tell your friends, tell your family, spread the word. We're trying to build something special here. Leave a review. Five stars will be absolutely amazing. Until next week, guys, keep moving forward.